So Nuttall begins his journey in Philadelphia. He heads to Pittsburgh and then down the Ohio River. I've chosen to start the chapter on Nuttall when he is at the confluence of the Mississippi and the Ohio, which is close to Christmas of 1818. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be continuing our conversation with historian and geographer Andrew J. Milson as we talk about 19th century botanist and explorer Thomas Nuttall. Nuttall really takes the time to visit with, to interview people in the area. This is maybe an area where we can see that Nuttall isn't completely single-minded about botany. He also views perhaps what we would think of now as cultural anthropology as something that's very interesting. A view from the banks of the Arkansas River, 1818 to 1820 on Arts and Letters. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be continuing our conversation with historian and geographer Andrew J. Milson about his book, Arkansas Travelers, Geographies of Exploration and Perception, 1804 to 1834, published by the University of Arkansas Press. On this episode, we'll be talking about Arkansas traveler and botanist Thomas Nuttall. It dawned on me when I tried to really focus my attention from the perspective of geography that I was really interested not so much in what they said, but where they said it, and also not so much about whether or not these men were describing the people in Arkansas, but what their descriptions said about the traveler. Once I was a traveler in Arkansas, I came upon a farmer chewing on a straw. He fiddled and he whittled all the live from day. He saw me coming down the road and he began to say, Where you coming from, stranger? One way you might look at this is that when one person insults another, it says as much about the person making the insult as it does describing the person who's being insulted. Just like the Arkansas Traveler. Absolutely. This gives us a picture, a lens, however uh, blurry in some cases it might be, uh, for understanding what Arkansas was like at this point in time. I think if we focus too much on history, we focus too much on geography, we focus too much on personality, we lose some of the interest that we can find when we intersect all of those different things. Andrew J. Milson, professor, geographer, historian, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start this one, if you wouldn't mind, by just reading a little Mm -hmm. bit. So this is uh, Thomas Nuttall, and he lived from 1786 to 1859. And let's just start a little bit with his life. While Henry Rose Schoolcraft and Levi Pettibone 
were canoeing down the White River in northern Arkansas in mid-January 1819, Thomas Nuttall arrived at Arkansas Post on the Arkansas River. Nuttall was an experienced traveler. Nuttall developed an interest in natural history while traveling as a young man in the Craven District of North Yorkshire in his native England. After immigrating to the United States in 1808 at the age of 22, he met Benjamin Smith Barton, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the textbook Elements of Botany. Barton recognized potential in young Thomas and agreed to tutor him and to allow the use of his library. On Barton's recommendation, Nuttall embarked on an excursion in 1810 tasked with gathering plant specimens along the Missouri River path of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Nuttall traveled through the Great Lakes, descended the Mississippi River to St. Louis, and ascended the Missouri River to Fort Mandan. Following this excursion, Nuttall returned to England in late 1811, where he remained until the War of 1812 was over. In 1815, Nuttall returned to the United States and embarked on a southern expedition, during which he explored the Potomac River and the Chesapeake, as well as Georgia and the Carolinas. The following year, Nuttall journeyed down the Ohio River to Cincinnati, overland across Kentucky and Tennessee, east through the Cumberland Gap and across the Carolinas to Charleston. Thus, in less than 10 years, Thomas Nuttall had traversed much of the eastern part of the United States and the Old Northwest. In 1817, at the age of 31, Nuttall had become a rising star among the scientists of the United States and was elected to the American Philosophical Society and the Academy of Natural Sciences at Philadelphia. In 1818, the publication of his first book, Genera of North American Plants, bolstered his international reputation as a botanist. But Nuttall was not ready to rest on his laurels. His goal was to travel to the Rocky Mountains in hopes of discovering new plant species. Nuttall probed his numerous connections to make known his desire to serve as a naturalist on a U.S. government-sponsored expedition to the Rockies. Whether it was suspicion about Nuttall's English nationality during a period of Anglophobia in the United States, or simply shifting priorities in politics regarding Western exploration, Nuttall was unable to secure backing. Instead, his colleagues at the American Philosophical Society agreed to fund his Rocky Mountain excursion. He departed Philadelphia in October 1818, traveled overland to Pittsburgh, sailed down the Ohio River, and arrived at the confluence of the Mississippi and Ohio Rivers one week before Christmas in 1818. It is at this point that we join Nuttall's journey. 
Once again, I'm just struck by how traveled these men were, particularly not all. He had done journey after journey. He was an extraordinarily experienced traveler, but his real orientation was as a botanist. Certainly, he was interested, I suppose, in the cultural aspects in the landscape and the agriculture and the hunting, but more so, he was interested in collecting plants. And they even called him Mr. Grassman later, right? I mean, this guy was completely obsessed with collecting. One of the things that botanists were seeking to do at this point in time and the thing that would make you famous would be to discover new species. One of the things that came with discovering new species was the right to name that and in some cases to have that named after you. And so this is part of the longer-term European classificatory kind of approach to science. We put all of these different things we find into boxes and try to connect them to each other. So not always very much absorbed with this scientific quest to go out and find new species. And at this point in time, the gold mine was out in the Rockies mm-hmm. to explore what was called the Garden of the Southwest to find the new species there. To some degree, this is pure science. This is, I want to find plants that we don't see in other parts and map those and describe those, draw sketches of them, bring back samples. The other part of botany that was particularly important, though, is that these plants perhaps had commercial value. If you could find natural species growing in places that perhaps had medicinal purposes, that could be used for dyes, that could be reaped and uh, sent to places for processing, this was a piece of the quest. And so he was not without commercial motives, but of all of the travelers that I write about, Nuttall was probably the most devoted scientist. His botanical interest was piqued by the flowering plants that were doubly interesting as the first fruits of a harvest never before reaped by any botanist. As Nuttall hiked and hunted in the area, he was greeted by blooming white flowers and blue flowers and the songs of redbirds and blue sparrows from the branches of pecan, oak, poplar, and walnut trees. The great prairie that stretches to the north and west like a shorn desert but well covered with grass and herbaceous plants was also intriguing to the botanist. Beyond the beauty and fascination of the environmental landscape, Nuttall predicted a great commercial future for southeast Arkansas once the area was settled by a cultural group willing and able to transform it. Nature has here done so much and man so little that we are yet totally unable to appreciate the value and resources of the soil. Under the influence of a climate mild as the south of Europe and a soil equal to that of Kentucky, wealth will ere long flow no doubt to the banks of the Arkansas. 
We're talking with historian and geographer Andrew J. Melson about botanist and Arkansas traveler Thomas Nuttall. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and this is Arts and Letters. And we're talking with historian and geographer Andrew J. Milson about 19th century botanist Thomas Nuttall. One of the things that's interesting is that Nuttall at the very beginning of his book says, I'm not writing this for people who just want to read entertaining stories about travelers. I'm writing this as a document of science. But he still talks quite a bit about the people that he encounters. And so there is some of the cultural commentary common to travel narratives in Nuttall's journal that he dismisses at the beginning as mm-hmm. perhaps fluff. Although with all of uh, Nuttall's experience, he, he doesn't start particularly well on this journey either. And in this case, I think it's interesting because with all the best of intentions and preparation, he messes up a little bit in the beginning. Thomas Nuttall plunged into the frigid water and tried in vain for nearly an hour to free their boat. Cold, wet, and exhausted, Nuttall and his companions sat down to contemplate their predicament. They must have been relieved and pleased when two boatmen appeared and offered to assist. Yet, relief may have turned to wariness when they learned that the assistance would come with a price. Nuttall paid the men $5 and their boat was soon floating. As dawn broke the next day, Nuttall discovered that the new landing spot the boatmen had guided them to in the dark left their boat grounded. The river had fallen overnight, and all of their efforts could not get the boat loose. The boatmen who assisted the prior evening sailed past them in the morning and ignored their calls for help. Be 
can't stand the guessing I can't spend the rest of my days being forced just Not all in his companions began to unload the boat in hopes of lightening it enough to free it from the sand. As they worked, the owner of a neighboring boat arrived, expressed disgust at the treatment they had received from the boatman, and offered his assistance for free. Another helper arrived who maintained that the boat was far too mired in the sand to be able to pry it loose until the river rose again. After some negotiation, the boat owner and his men agreed that for $8, they would engage in what they claimed would be the difficult and likely hopeless work of freeing the boat. Nuttall reluctantly paid the men, and despite their claims of the severity of the situation, the boat was pried loose and set afloat within a minute. The boatman must have been amused at how easily they had conned the traveler out of his money, and to add further insult to injury, they brashly refused to help reload the boat as promised. Perhaps it was fitting that Wolf's Island was the name for this spot near the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi River. No, I won't let this time pass us by. So as experienced as he is, he's stuck in a spot. Pays him eight bucks. Eight bucks is a lot of money back then, too. One of the things that I think he's encountering is this beginning of this frontier landscape as he's getting into the Mississippi River environment. The people that are inhabiting this area are traders. They're on the move. They have things to do. They encounter hapless people who have money, and they figure, this will be easy. I'll uh, get paid, help them out a little bit, and then I'm going to take off and leave them to figure things out. He's also a descriptive observer, particularly early on. He's a scientist, so he's trying to keep it as objective as he can. And you call this a view from the banks of the Arkansas River. Why? Much of the allure of the Arkansas River at this point in time is as a potential passageway to the West. But for our purposes in looking at Arkansas history and geography, the river also forms a very interesting cross-section of the state. So not only does it sort of bisect the state physically, it also provides us a really interesting look at the cross-section of cultures that lived and inhabited the banks of the Arkansas River. So for both an environmental and for a cultural look at the state, just as it was becoming a territory, this is the place to be. The Arkansas River is Main Street for Arkansas, and Nuttall is traveling up this Main Street and back down this Main Street and telling us what he sees. This is Arts and Letters. We're talking with Andrew J. Milson about 19th century botanist Thomas Nuttall. There are very many places along the way that we might think about looking at what I call the native landscape of Arkansas. And so the Arkansas River forms this nice cross-section through territories that many different native groups lived. Toward the Delta region near the Mississippi River and Arkansas Post, he encounters the Quapaw. He also views Choctaw villages and so forth. Not all really takes the time to 
visit with, to interview people in the area. Some of this is probably because he's delayed. <laughs> he doesn't really intend to stay in some of these places as long as he, as he does. This is maybe an area where we can see that Nuttall isn't completely single-minded about botany. He also views perhaps what we would think of now as cultural anthropology as something that's very interesting. He wants to observe and describe the native peoples, perhaps almost in a way as objects of the landscape. Tell us about the Arkansas Post settlement. So the Arkansas Post was initially established by the French as a trading post with the Quapaw of the area. This is in a very Delta-like marshy part of the state. This was just off of the Mississippi River. So it existed mostly as a trading post by the time Nuttall comes through, there are some French and French-Canadian and Métis people who have settled here. And by this time, they're involved in the same thing that the French had been involved in for quite some time, which is trading and interacting with the native peoples of that area. One way that we can interpret Nuttall's impressions of the French settlers at Arkansas Post is to understand that this, he is an Englishman. I once upon you in search of the wonder, the lightning and the thunder, the sunshine and blue, the mountains and the rivers, they all take over me, like in the rolling sea, I'm drowning in you. La, 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 la. And this is perhaps a case of an Englishman sneering at French Canadians. And so I interpret it mostly as a matter of national bias. I looked and I found you and I least expected, like God perfected, if they only knew the beauty and the wonder, all that I ponder, to the wealth yonder, I will say true. He moves from the Arkansas River, from Arkansas Post, to Little Rock. What does he see in Little Rock? They called it the Little Rock or the settlement of the Little Rock. So today we think of Little Rock as being kind of the center of the state. Obviously, it's the capital. It's on the Arkansas River. But it also marks an important boundary between the southeastern part of the river that flows down to the Mississippi where the land is a bit flatter, a bit uh, more agriculturally oriented, and the area to the north and west, where we're getting into a more rugged valley between the Ozarks and the Washita. 
on his journey from Arkansas Post to Little Rock, he encounters much of the trading society that has built up in Arkansas. Many of them are of French heritage, but he's impressed by the European improvement of the land, the ways in which crops are being grown. And he also sees on opposite banks of the river, European and native societies existing side by side on either side of the river. He's not particularly complimentary, however, of the Quapaw that he sees from the boat, is he? One of the things that disappoints, not all, in his view of civilization is that the Quapaw have not advanced. This is some of the same prejudice that men of his station would have held toward hunters and natives who he believed were not making proper use of the land. When he saw poverty, one of the things that was common among all these travelers was to blame the poor for their poverty, to essentially look at them and say, you're poor because you're lazy, because you you spend your money and you spend your resources on things that don't matter, like trying to dress in a particular way. How did you reconcile the scientist in him that was an observer? Because that's when the passages, at least from the journals, really hum. And then the really strong bias in the critique of people. He was much more observant and descriptive of place and much more critical. And he was not fair when it came to people. He wasn't objective. It's difficult to know for sure. But one of the things I come away with is a sense that Nuttall probably thought quite a bit of himself. You know, here was a man who was in his early 30s. He'd accomplished quite a bit. He'd been living in Philadelphia, which was the center of culture, science, and civilization for the United States. He was attempting to make his way to the Rockies. And so perhaps he was a bit impatient with the delays that had occurred all along his trip. And he's running into people that he just doesn't think perhaps are worthy of the space that they inhabit. So perhaps Mm. some of this is just a snobbery. Mm. Some of this is probably his national bias as an Englishman. These are frontier Americans. So they are necessarily described as hicks and rubes. And the native peoples are in a really interesting period of transformation at this time that he couldn't have possibly understood. They're not that far removed from being pushed out. There are already peoples from the Southeast who have been pushed into Arkansas and are beginning to make waves in the cultural landscape. 
This is Arts and Letters. We're talking with Andrew J. Milson about explorer and botanist Thomas Nuttall. We'll be back in a moment. This is Arts and Letters, and we're listening to Andrew J. Milson talk about a view from the banks of the Arkansas River. Thomas Nuttall, 1818 to 
forcibly inspire us with that veneration which we justly owe to the high antiquity of nature in which appears to rise no less from a solemn and intuitive reflection on their vast capacity for duration contrasted with the transient scene in which we ourselves only appear to act as a momentary part. Reminded by Shakespeare, here he is positioning himself as a momentary traveler in relation to this grand landscape that for millions of years has been forming. He does manage to uh, describe the landscape in a way that you can appreciate his love of science, not only as a botanist, but perhaps more broadly as a naturalist, sort of uh, appreciating the natural environment and being able to be inspired by it. On the following day, Nuttall sketched a distant view of the Maumel, present-day Pinnacle Mountain, and then trekked to the summit of one of the cliffs on the opposite side of the river. From this vantage point, he described the low mountains running in chains from the north of west to the south of east, and the meanders of the river that were hidden by the pervading forest of its alluvial lands, still fertile and expansive. The Maumel now appeared nearly double the elevation of that on which he stood, probably more than 1,000 feet in height, and presented the appearance of a vast pyramid, hiding its summit in the clouds. During the four days that Nuttall spent near the Cadron settlement, he explored the surrounding area and commented on the land, Indian mounds, the lack of education among the population, the operations of U.S. land surveyors, and the health of the country. Nuttall judged the land to be of an inferior quality, and chiefly timbered with oaks and hickories thinly scattered, and concluded that ages must elapse before this kind of land will be worth purchasing at any price. Though the surrounding land would not be suitable for growing cotton or corn, not all speculated that the place might have some commercial value as a good range for pastorates of cattle and the decoctions of the wood of the sassafras and spice bush could become very palatable to substitutes for tea. Nuttall also noted that maple trees in the area could, by a little attention, afford sugar at a low rate. Regarding the native landscape, Nuttall noted, a considerable collection of aboriginal tumuli. These were not the first Indian mounds that Nuttall had observed in Arkansas, and he lamented, both they and their history are buried in impenetrable oblivion, their existence blotted out from the page of the living. So two things I'm noting here. This is the Cadron settlement, which is kind of near Conway. Right. He notes a difference in the landscape a little bit, but he's taken by the Indian mounds <clears throat> and saddened 
He's seen so much different landscape, and then he also wants to penetrate the history of these, these mounds. One of the contradictions for white people at the time was that they lamented to some degree the passing of a vanishing race was the way they saw this, and that, uh, that there was something sad happening to the Native peoples. Some of this they simply blamed on the natives. They believed this was a matter of uh, the natives not being able to survive. And so this was the natural course of events. For a scientist like Nuttall, he saw a bit of a problem with this. He saw that this race was, was vanishing and that it would be something that would be lost to history. The contradiction is that at the very same time, the peoples who are still inhabiting the lands are being disrespected and dispossessed of their lands and in numerous ways are being undercut in their ability to be successful. He spends an awful lot of time with the Cherokee near Petagene River. Right. And what's his relationship to the Cherokee? So he gets delayed again as he's heading from Little Rock to Fort Smith. And along the way, there's a, an area that is appropriately named Point Remove Creek, which is the area that the Cherokee had been given for settlement. Uh, and what he sees impresses him in many ways. He's impressed by the fences and the farms and the agriculture that the Cherokee are engaged in. He sees this as a, a sort of happy movement towards civilization. And so he sees the Cherokees doing what he expects the Quapaw and the Choctaw and everybody else in the area to have been doing. And he's, he's impressed by that. Not all thought that the civilized habits, industry, and augmenting population of the Cherokees could prove to be a dangerous enemy to the frontiers of the Arkansas Territory if their land claims were not settled. He speculated that if the Cherokees decided to petition Spain for land across the Red River in Texas, and if they continued to embrace Anglo-American habits and industry, that they may, in time, increase and become a powerful and independent nation, subject by habit to a monarchical form of government. One of the fears of, of every imperialist is that the uh, people that you're attempting to subjugate will learn your techniques and become knowledgeable and capable of resisting you. And so on the one hand, he sees poverty and destitution among the Quapaws and says, how sad these people aren't doing what they should be doing. On the other hand, he sees Cherokees who are thriving and building a society that could potentially rival the Americans. When he arrives at Fort Smith, he's in the company of the American military who had just recently arrived. One of the purposes of the military at that point in time at Fort Smith was to deal with some of the potential conflict over land claims between the Native Americans and white settlers. 
he's disagreeably surprised. <laughs> uh, they tell him that he doesn't have permission to go where he wants. They keep him from his journey. In some ways, when Nuttall arrives in Fort Smith, he encounters what we might think of as an officious bureaucrat. <laughs> Major Bradford. Major Bradford says, I don't have orders that allow you to do this, so I can't let you continue ascending the Arkansas. After some discussion, Nuttall convinces him that, yes, it is indeed within his power to make this happen, and so he allows him to continue the journey. But he makes the best of this kind of temporary, this stasis uh, he explores for three weeks surrounding territory. For the next three weeks, Nuttall explored the surrounding territory and was quite impressed with the whole expanse of forest, hill, and dale, richly enameled with a profusion of beautiful and curious flowers. The uplands that appeared nearly as fertile as the alluvians and affords a most productive pasture to the cattle. The soil that was of superior quality and thickly covered with vegetable earth. The trees that had appeared scattered as if planted by art. And the adjoining prairie that was like an immense meadow covered with a luxuriant herbage and beautifully decorated with flowers. Despite the pastoral landscape, not all managed little sleep overnight due to the swarms of mosquitoes, the unusual music of frogs, the cheerless howling of a distant wolf, and the vociferations of the whippoorwill. Dawn brought with it the melodious chorus of many thousands of birds agreeably dispersing the solemnity of the ambiguous twilight. Well, that's easier coming than going, at least that's just how I feel. There's no way to run as I go, so I have to leave you now. There's a little diversion to the Red River so in mid-May of 1819, Major Bradford was ordered to go down to the Red River, which is now the, the border between Texas and Oklahoma, and remove some white settlers who were illegally squatting on land that had been reserved for natives. And we don't know exactly the details, because Nuttall doesn't explain why in his journal. Hmm. But I imagine him saying, can I come along? Maybe I'll find something interesting. And, and he does. So he spends a couple of months there on this journey down to the Red River, which is essentially along the state lines now of Arkansas and Oklahoma. He explores areas that provide him with plenty of botanical interests. Every job is worth doing if you're the best one they can find. But I rely on my skills to pay the bill, so I have to leave you now. And he spends three weeks with the Stiles family, explores the land, enjoys the songs of birds and flora. One thing that happens is Nuttall gets so carried away with his botanical explorations that he doesn't manage to get back in time to leave with the military party to head back to Fort Smith. Mm -hmm. He tries to catch up with them and doesn't. So he ends up getting stranded in Oklahoma for a little while before he finally finds a party who can uh, help him get back to Fort Smith. Well, the rain came through my window on a dragonfly's back then. came and took him away, so I have to leave you now. But uh, in early July, he becomes sick. So after he leaves Fort Smith, he's continuing his journey to the Rockies. He visits some traders 
in the area of the uh, Verdigris River and Arkansas rivers. And somewhere along the way, he gets bitten by a mosquito, probably multiple mosquitoes, Mm -hmm. but he contracts malaria. The months of August and September 1819 were the most miserable stage of Nuttall's excursion. At the end of July, Nuttall noted, An irregular remittent fever began to show itself in our camp, with which myself and five or six others were affected. The malaria he had contracted caused horrible headaches and fever for the first few days of August. To add insult to injury, Nuttall was robbed of his penknife and pocket microscope and almost lost his horse to a thief while he was ill. On August 11th, he had recovered sufficiently to continue his journey west. Accompanied by a trapper named Lee, Nuttall set out overland toward the Cimarron River. The men planned to follow the Cimarron through the current-day Oklahoma panhandle to the present state boundaries of New Mexico and Colorado, and thus avoid the northern bend of the Arkansas River that veered into Kansas before heading west. But three days into the trek, Nuttall's fever returned. Although suffering from fever and diarrhea and finding it difficult to escape the burning sun and sultry air, Nuttall was determined to continue his travels. After four days of distress and a fainting spell, during which Nuttall almost fell from his horse, Lee convinced the resolute traveler to return to the trading post at the Verdigree before his illness made further travel impossible or cost him his life. The situation soon turned from bad to worse. Lee's horse was weak and becoming unable to walk or carry baggage. To move forward, Lee and Nuttall had to resort to double journeys in which Nuttall's horse and presumably Mr. Lee would take half of the baggage some distance ahead, leave it, and then return for Nuttall and the remaining gear. To make matters worse, their blankets, linen, and other gear had become infested with flies and maggots. Nuttall soon became too weak to bear any exercise and unable to eat due to the gastrointestinal distress that accompanies malaria. For the next few days, the men trudged ahead as Nuttall experienced the miseries of sickness, delirium, and despondence. In at least one instance of delirium, Nuttall's mind became so unaccountably affected with horror and distraction that for a time it was impossible to proceed to any convenient place of encampment. The last shred of hope for Nuttall might have been that he was in the company of an experienced guide. That hope, too, began to wane as Nuttall noted on September 1st that his companion now appeared to be ignorant of the country and that they saw nothing far and wide but an endless scrubby forest of dwarvish oaks. So he is not in a good place and he's convinced that his guide's kind of lost. After a few days and another 40 miles or so trekking through the rugged cross timbers region of Oklahoma, Nuttall and Lee arrived at the banks of the low, red, and muddy Cimarron River. Lee, still concerned about the nearby Osages, determined that it would be best not to travel immediately along the river. But after his horse became hopelessly mired in the mud, Lee spent a few days constructing a canoe that would carry them down the Cimarron and back to the Arkansas River. As they neared present-day Tulsa on the Arkansas River, Nuttall and Lee could see the smoke of the Osage Village. On September 11th, 
The travelers met the Osages. Today, with all our caution, it became impossible to avoid the discovery of the Indians as two or three families were encamped along the borders of the river. They ran up to us with a confidence that was by no means reciprocal. One of the men was a blind chief, not unknown to Mr. Lee, who gave him some tobacco from which he appeared to be satisfied. About the encampment, there were a host of squaws who were extremely impertinent. An old woman resembling one of the imaginary witches in Macbeth told me with an air of insolence that I must give her my horse for her daughter to ride on. I could walk, and that the Osages were numerous and could soon take it from me. At last, the blind chief invited us to his camp to eat, but had nothing to offer us but boiled maize sweetened with marmalade of pumpkins. When we were about to depart, they all ran to the boat, to the number of ten or twelve, showing symptoms of mischief and could not be driven away. They held on to the canoe and endeavored to drag it aground. Mr. Lee tried in vain to get rid of them, although armed with a rifle. At length they got to pilfering out baggage. Even the blind chief also turned thief on this occasion. We had not got out of the sight of these depredators before another fellow came after us on the run in order to claim my horse, insisting that it was his, and I could no way satisfy his unfounded demand but by giving him one of my blankets. It seems to me they're messing with them a little bit here, too. They are, and, and so you can see some of the differences in the way in which these two different groups of people perceive their encounter. The Osages are thinking, you've come into my territory, mm -hmm. you have things I need. Mm -hmm. Give them to us. Give them to me. The white men saw it as thievery. The natives saw it as providing, you know, uh, trade. Though he was still weak and cramping, it was arranged by late September for Nuttall to return to Fort Smith by boat. At Fort Smith, Nuttall found that he was not alone in his suffering that season. He noted that from July to October, the ague and bilious fever spread through the territory in a very unusual manner, and that not less than 100 Cherokees settled contiguous to the banks of the Arkansas died this season of the bilious fever. Both malaria and yellow fever had taken a severe toll on the population of Northwest Arkansas in 1819. Not all was fortunate to have survived. So he does make it back to Arkansas Post in uh, January 15th, 1820. Mid pleasures and passes, though I may roam, be it. Ever so humble, there's no place like home. That all did not think that the choice of Arkansas for the name of the town was a good one, since the name is far too easily confounded with that of the river. While the name Ozark, still assumed by the lower villagers of the Quapaws, and in memory of when this place was first so called, would have been perfectly intelligible and original. Nuttall's health must have improved by this time, as he spent two days exploring the prairies around Arkansas Post before departing on January 19th on the barge of Monsieur Notreb. Thus, one year after his arrival, Nuttall bid farewell to Arkansas. So if it were up to Nuttall, we'd be called Ozark. This would be the state of Ozark. <laughs> There's no place like home. 
Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Thank you to musicians, singers, and songwriters. The Lark and the Loon. Thank you to Joseph Fuller, Michael Fuller, Bobby Fuller, Jessica Fuller, and Donna Fuller for the beautifully inspired music. Thank you to Brent Cook for the voice work. Thank you to Joseph Fuller of Orchestra of One for helping to mix and for mastering the episode. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to geographer and historian Andrew J. Nelson for taking us on a journey with botanist Thomas Nuttall and chronicling his view from the banks of the Arkansas River. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed these words from Thomas Nuttall. The name Ozark, still assumed by the lower villagers of the Quapaw, and in memory of when this place was first so-called, would have been perfectly intelligible and original. This show is dedicated in memory of Donna Ford. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.